The following episode is sponsored by the Social Mobility Commission. Like us, the Social Mobility Commission share a vision of a society where everyone can secure a decent chance of a better future regardless of their background and where people can be proud of where they come from but not be limited to where they can go. We hope you enjoy this discussion. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Over the Bridge podcast. Uh, it's so good. We're on like form with having a full cast. This is like amazing. We're every week now, seem to have everyone here, even though we have busy lives, but it's I think the best way to start Sunday morning, which is a day that we record together. Um, my news is that I've spent most of this week kind of focusing on the American election and getting too excited about what's going on in America as opposed to getting excited about, well, nothing to be excited about as to what's going on here in the UK right now. Um, but it's been good news overall. But how's the rest of you, Kwaku, Patrick, Tom, how's your week been? Good, yeah. man. It's been, it's been all right. Um, yeah, similarly, like quite a... It's, it's been quite a slow week UK side, but yeah, it's been interesting kind of seeing what's going on uh, across the Atlantic. Mm. Um, yeah, man, I can't lie. I came, I came into the uh, like viewing the uh, election race, kind of thinking, yeah, is is a, a myth. Like Trump is going to get it again, and it's kind of yeah. I, I can't lie. I've, 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 I'm shocked. I'm quite so, shocked at how it's, it's turned out. It's a very pleasant surprise because, yeah, I was the same, Kweku. I was very pessimistic. I was like, this year is it's an awful year. And you know what? It's just going to it's just gonna keep getting worse, to be honest. Um, but yeah, like to, I won't lie. Like I'm, I'm slightly gassed that, you know, Trump um, is, you know, he's been, has been defeated. But it's, it's a weird thing. Like everybody's been saying, like, you know, it's like, I suppose, the lesser of two evils um, mm. for, for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, it does feel a bit weird to be like so. I, I, but honestly, I swear, like I was so like when I saw because I've just been watching like the US election. Like I just have it open on my Google, my phone. Yeah. So every couple of hours, I'm always checking to see oh, if those last like has has um, Biden won Pennsylvania yet? Has it got to two seventy yet or whatever? Has he won Nevada yet? Yeah, I don't. So when I saw it hit two eighty four, I don't think I've hit refresh on my phone. At listen, that listen. I, I, and I said to myself at the beginning of it, I was like, I'm not even going to get in. Because I remember last time I, I was very invested in it. I was in Brazil at the time and um, I tried to stay up. Um, but like, obviously the the prognosis was very bad. Mm. It, yeah, it was mm. like looking to be a landslide. And I went to sleep thinking, oh Lord, let there be some miracle. And I woke up and it was just even worse. So I was like, I'm not getting invested mm. this time, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I did. Yeah. Um, but to see it hit 284, I can't lie, I was... It was just happy because I was just happy because it's like, yeah, yeah. Like, that guy really. That it's been keeping you up this week. The, um, yeah, the, man. It's I work. mean, it's obviously occupational hazard, right? So Trump, Trump and Biden has kind of been a focal point for a few months, actually. To be honest, everybody said, "Oh, what do you think about this for Trump?" And what do you, what does Biden do for this? And what does Biden do for the, for that? You know, and so I've had to stay on top of, of everything and you know and and actually I, I i went to bed early so i could wake up kind of early to kind of see the election unfold and mm. i was up at like 3 a.m on the day and i was like hold on this just feels really weird there's been no impetus no movement and whatever and i'm like this just feels really weird so i was like i have a trump's just gonna slam dunk it but then i thought i, I kind of an hour or two went on i thought hang on you should have really won this by now like what happened in 2016 and it hasn't done it and i'm like well you know, it's the whole, the mail-in votes, mm. right? That is basically Biden. And that's kind of the big difference. Democrats are more technologically savvy, so they will send in their votes uh, and they use podcasts and social media, whereas uh, Republicans tend to be like, we're going to drive with our, you know, drive uh, to vote and we're going to listen to radio and listen to Rush Limbaugh tell us to vote for Trump and stuff. So mm. it was kind mm. of a nice, I was surprised. I was surprised, but I don't, I don't mm. know if Trump, Trump has relinquished his position yet. That's the no. thing. That's the it's thing. Not over. Think, it's not over. Well, yeah. Yeah. I feel like there's going to be another twist in this still. Yeah. And also let's, let's remember the fact that in these kind of situations, Trump doesn't necessarily have to relinquish his position just yet. This thing can go to the Supreme court, right? 
uh, like 2000 when things almost went to the, to the Supreme Court and then kind of... Well, what I want to say, just st- stick a pause in it at this point, because we don't know when people might be listening to this conversation, right? And you might be listening being like, that was ages ago that these guys are talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to hold on that. But this is where we're at in the week, in the world, actually, this week. So um, thank you. Anyway, interesting part of the world. But we're not here. We could spend probably hours talking about how the election in the US has been going. We're not here to talk about that because today we're joined by an infamous and very special guest whose name I'm sure you would have seen and or you might have seen her herself on the TV at various points, particularly in the last few years. Um, we're joined by Naomi Kelman. Naomi, thank you for joining us today. Uh, would you love to introduce yourself to our listeners? Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here with you guys this morning. So I'm Naomi Kalman. I'm the founder of Target Oxbridge, a programme that's been helping Black African and Caribbean students to apply to Oxford and Cambridge since 2012. We've helped over 200 students gain places so far, and we had 74 students join Oxford and Cambridge this year, which was amazing wow. to be. Yeah, yeah, especially with everything that's been going on with the pandemic and the A-level yeah. fiasco. It was so brilliant to see that, that group of students, especially given where things were when we started. Yeah, well, that's that's amazing news. It's really good to hear good news at this point in the world. To be <laughs> yeah, seventy-four in just just this academic year. Yeah, yeah, split between Oxford and Cambridge, but it's huge given the sorts of numbers we were looking at when we started. Oxford mm. and Cambridge were taking just under thirty black students, not including mixed race students, around 2012, 2013 yeah, when we yeah. started this work. And so now mm. for as a program, a small program, to be sending more than that to each plus, yeah. you know, others from all over the country, that's that's really good to see. Yeah. And you know what, like there is like a very visible difference now compared to like when we were when we were there, you know, like We've spoken to like current um, and recently graduated black Cambridge students and like, yeah, they're no longer able to name every single person in their year. Do you know what I mean? Like we were, (laughs) which is like, yeah, it's just, um, it is very, very encouraging and very, very refreshing. Um, And yeah, we've obviously come into contact with you quite a few times, Naomi. So yeah, just on a personal note, like, you know, we're big fans of you guys and yeah, it's just really great to see you guys flourishing. Yeah, absolutely. This feels like one of those episodes that's been a long time coming in terms of mm. having you on. So we're really looking forward to it. Um, so before we get into some of the successes, I suppose, of Target Oxbridge and what you're up to currently, maybe um tell us about you, sort of what was your life, your upbringing, what got you to being in this role that you're doing right now? Yeah, I mean, I think we're the best place to start is, I guess. I'll start with my, my heritage. So I've got grandparents that hail from all over. So on my dad's side, my grandparents are from Jamaica and Barbados. On my mum's side, they're from Nigeria and England. And I grew up in Croydon, Croydon born and bred, still here. Um, so I guess my own life, by definition, has always been one of diversity and different things coming together and making a great lived experience. I was state educated, so I went to an all-girls comprehensive school wasn't the worst school but it wasn't it wasn't the best school um and so I was a high performer there but didn't necessarily see many people in my environment aiming for top unis Mm -hmm. a teacher said to me in year 11 oh you should think about PP at Oxford and it was really nice for her to say so but I just didn't know anybody who was state educated and black going to places like that and it wasn't really clear to me how, how you did do it. But it was nice to have the vote of confidence. And I always say that there's a luck in any story of success. And, you know, we're often sold that it's all meritocracy or people are self-made. And I, I just don't believe that it's support from people and also little bits of luck here and there. Mm. And my big bit of luck came with a school switch, which happened really last minute. I didn't want to stay at my school. Wasn't sure where else to go. And a friend handed me the details of a grammar school in a neighbouring borough three days before the deadline. And I decided to apply because I looked them up. I was like, oh, these are great grades. Oh, they send people to top universities. Maybe they'll be able to help me out. And I didn't even really know much about grammar schools when I was growing up. Uh, my parents hadn't really been aware of them. And I always say that making that switch exposed me 
to I guess how other people are living all the time in terms of <laughs> you know just these things being aspirations but realistic aspirations from the get-go schools that understand these systems it wasn't a school that was sending loads and loads of people to Oxbridge at that point but it had sent some and it had done so regularly and so I moved there which I will say was the first big culture shock in my life because even though it's a neighboring borough these are people who are much sort of better off um you know, already traveling a lot, already knowing people who've gone to top unis. For context, I'm the eldest of six girls. So we'd grown up with enough, but, you know, not not in luxury. Um, so it was a culture shock to go there. But I saw the sorts of support that people were getting. School was great at helping me to get to Oxford. I always say it was still a bit of a bumpy ride. <laughs> um, I spent a lot of time worried about being the only person like me if I did go mm-hmm. to Oxford. Mm-hmm. Only person from a state school, any person who's black, any person who didn't have loads of cash. Um, and that had made me hesitant. But I got there. It was a culture shock. It was brilliant by the end. It wasn't easy at the beginning. And there were lots of things I'd wish I'd known before going. Because mm-hmm. overall, it was a good experience. But if I'd known what I was getting into ahead of time, <laughs> I might have found the first year easier to adjust to. And I think all of those things shaped my thinking about access and diversity and fairness, just because I always say it was great I made that move, but that shouldn't have been the only thing that secured my outcomes. I shouldn't have had to escape the comprehensive education system to get those opportunities. And that small moment of change changed my life. But what if it hadn't? Is, Is that fair is that right and what about everyone else who didn't get that lucky break yeah yeah i hear that um i just had a quick question just like based on like um your initial experience when you um when you first arrived at university and you said like you know you wish that you knew certain things before you got there what were the sort of main things that you wish you you had known was it sort of mainly academic stuff or was it more about the environment um and the kind of i guess the yeah the kind of the space that you were going to be living in for the next few years it's a good question so many different things I think I think I wasn't prepared for what it would do to my ego and no one has spoken to me about that and I think I'd always been a top performer and I think maybe that was possibly too much of my impression of myself or my understanding Mm. of my value Mm. when you turn up somewhere like Oxford and Cambridge you were not the brightest person anymore Mm. but also a lot of my peers were privately educated grammar school educated there was a girl in my year who'd dad and granddad had been to our very college not even just to Oxford right wow (laughs) yeah (laughs) and um yeah and like she was a lovely person but Mm. they they came with a sense of belonging or mm. as if you know it was right that they had that place yeah, yeah, I remember yeah. turning up and they were saying they were talking about their favorite favorite plato texts and i hadn't read any plato i was doing philosophy politics and economics for context mm. i'd only just figured out who some of these philosophers were and i took a lot of this as comment on my ability or how bright i was mm. and if someone had warned me that look you're going to meet people with different educational backgrounds and different amounts of I guess acclimatization to this world but that has no bearing on how good you are or how mm. much you can do here yeah yeah and yeah I'm a, sorry um I'll, I'll let you continue I'll let you finish I was just gonna oh no I was just gonna say and that that's what I've tried to do with Target Oxbridge just let the students know that the thing that they've been accepted for is their intelligence and their potential and you don't have to turn up ready-made and mm. just because other people have a great hold of the canon or whatever accepted texts there are that you're going to read, you still have something to bring to the table, even if that's different. And that's mm. a strength as well. Yeah, mm. for sure. For sure. I, I was just going to say, um, I feel like one of the, yeah, one of the biggest challenges for me for sure was just like, just accepting that, you know, some people, they don't need to study as hard as you, or they don't need to, you know, they just don't find it as difficult as you and they will just, they will just succeed and they'll just be good. And, you know, not to feel like, you know, you're any less of a person because of that. Like it's definitely that feeling of going from being like, I guess, like a big fish in a small pond to like 
just a small fish in a huge pond where everybody is like very, very good or excellent. Like, so, um, yeah, that was for me, that was one of my struggles, struggles at, at Cambridge. It was just like accepting there are people that are just going to be smarter than you, no matter how, how hard you try. And you know what? That's fine. That's good. And I think after that, because it was like, I think it was like halfway through second year, I was like, what am I doing? Like, why can't I just do that? And then I just thought, you know what? Nah, it's fine. Let me just run my own race. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. Um, you know what? Yeah. I was going to say that the, the point about you bring something different to the table is really quite important because I remember I'd, mm. I interned years ago at Goldman Sachs years ago and uh, we part of the interview process is you have to sit around various senior members of staff so they put me next to the senior partner who ran the whole department and I was on his right hand side on on the left hand side of the partner was a guy who also did economics in my year he went to Cambridge, he was much more polished, he was much more, he was definitely smarter, but the difference was, it was kind of like, he couldn't talk, he could think, he couldn't talk, mm. whereas I could talk, I couldn't think, well, not think to, you know, in the framework that they wanted us to think in. And I said to the partner, I was like, I know exactly what you're doing, and I'm like, I'm not stupid. I'm like, you've put me next to this guy, you put me on the right hand side, you put him on the left hand side, I'm like, chances are you're going to hire this person, but chances are you're going to have a better conversation with me and we'll see where we are in a couple of years time. It's as simple as that. And it's, and you know, obviously that doesn't help things, but I was like, I was really annoyed at what you're trying to no, but what they're trying to do. And I'm like, and it's kind of life, right? Is that everybody brings something different to the table and you can't try and try and, you know, think Oxford, Oxford and Cambridge are these kind of homogenous beings. Right. And, Mm. and, and, Mm. You know, and that was kind of one of my issues for a long time was people tried to pigeonhole you into this kind of box of like you should be this type of person mm. who used to speak in a certain kind of way and whatever. And, and mm. you know, and, and I'm happy that obviously as, as there are more, there are more um, black people, mixed race people that are going in, in there that hopefully they can be much more comfortable in their own skin than we were maybe 10 years ago or even, mm. were even mm. longer than that. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're all shaped by our experiences, I suppose, but... um. Yeah. Also, it's just just a side note. It's very refreshing to talk about bringing things to the table and it not being about relationships. I'm just I'm glad that we're because Twitter's just <laughs> I've, I've actually had enough of that discussion on Twitter. So, like, what do you mean to no? But yeah, it was nice that it's a slightly different take. That's hilarious. Um, I had a question actually because um, when you spoke about going from your state school to the grammar school, um, it made me think. And just for context, like I went to the grammar school that you're talking about. Um, and I, like when I joined in um, in year seven, most of my friends from primary school ended up going on to um, comprehensive secondary schools. And I was wondering because I was, I was high performing in primary school, I was high performing at secondary school. I was thinking if I'd gone to a, a comprehensive school, would I still have kind of had the trajectory that I've had up to that point? Um, so it's interesting to hear how you saw that transition for you being a big um, factor in, as far as you actually um, going to Oxford. And I was wondering, why do you think that is? Was it kind of like as far as the expectations that teachers had of you at the grammar school compared to the comprehensive school? Or was there kind of something else to it? I think my comprehensive school they didn't want me to go they actually really asked me to stay and they wanted to help me apply to top universities what I was aware of even at that age was they didn't have the track record mm-hmm. and so what you need is an understanding of the process and support at each of those stages and even at 16 I wasn't confident that the school knew how to support me through that and I was aware that there are some schools that have been doing it for years and years and years with brilliant results. And I think when I'd made the switch, it wasn't because my old school didn't believe in me as such. It was because I think I was savvy enough, even at that age, to know that there's also something about navigating the process. Mm-hmm. And I thought the grammar school might be in a better position to do that. I did see some things though at that school, which I think also lit a fire for the work I do now, because the school was very happy for me to apply to Oxford and Cambridge. What I saw though was there were two black boys in my year in particular that I remember who wanted to apply to Oxbridge and the school was not as supportive of their applications. Mm. For context, I had 
a pretty large number of A-star grades. And so nobody in their right mind could really have said anything to me about applying. Mm -hmm. These students had a good number, but I think there's this myth that you have to have, you know, eight, nine, 10 A-stars and you don't, especially with all the contextualization that the universities do. But even schools well-versed in the Oxbridge process don't seem to know that or didn't know it then at least. Mm -hmm. And so those two black guys had a really hard time getting support from the school to apply. And this is even though they've been at the school for, for a long time, for in some cases from year seven. And I remember seeing that disparity and just thinking how unfair it was, because it, in my mind, wasn't really for the school to take the decision about who does and doesn't get to try. It doesn't have any impact on the school's reputation. Schools think it does, it doesn't. Um, and they finally were able to apply, but they spent so much of their efforts and energies fighting for the chance that they had barely any time to prepare for their interviews. Mm. They didn't get in. They went to other brilliant universities and they're doing very well now, but they were very upset by that experience because instead of the school outrightly supporting them, they had to expend all their energies fighting. And I think that always sat with me because again, if I hadn't had grades that meant it was obvious that I should apply, would I also have had to fight? Would I also have had my energies misdirected. I see it still now, sadly, students who are fighting for the opportunity to just give it a go. And luckily we're in a position to help people navigate that. But again, how many black students are having to fight for the right? And I think you guys have spoken in the past about different experiences you had trying to get that support. Yeah, my, yeah. I, so I, I, went to, I went to a comp from 11 to 16. It stopped at 16. And I was like, where do I go for sick form or college or whatever and I thought you know let me go to a, let me try and go to a grammar school as well because I thought you know I'd just be better and I went to a boys school because I was like you know I knew what I was like when I was 16 I was like no nah, I don't want to be in a mixed environment I knew what I was like in it and mum was like no nah, you should son go to a go to a go to a boys school for two years and focus and you know focus on your book and whatever I and I don't know right go that. to a boys school to be honest Tom man <laughs> shut up <laughs> and I went to I, um so I went to this school and they were quite hesitant in letting me apply to to Cambridge. And, you know, they, the same kind of logic, oh, you don't have enough A stars. And I was like, well, I've done all right, considering that my school at the time was like 20 plus, like, you know, plus a few points, 20%, like five A's to C's, including maths and English. I was like, I got all A stars and A's. I'm like, does that not mean something? They were like, no, not really. I was like, mm. okay, fine. So I had to spend a few weeks fighting and fighting and fighting. And, uh, Eventually, I had I had the support of a couple of teachers. I was like, no, I'll just let him apply. And you're right, it does actually take a bit of energy to expend. And then, you know, you apply. But luckily, I did the UCAS application process quite early. So I didn't I didn't feel like I lost that much time fighting, but it was still quite taxing. And so when it was like, okay, you got an interview, I was like, guys, I'm not coming to school for two weeks. I'm just going to stay at home for two weeks and prepare for this interview. Because quite frankly, I don't actually care about my A-levels at this current stage. I'll care afterwards in... January when I have to focus on the grades and then you know and then yeah and then that two weeks actually paid off just staying at home and preparing mm -hmm. properly and you know so yeah I'll just so I'm, I'm just thinking because we we talk a lot on this podcast as to what seems to come up is about the role of teachers or the role of the school or the role of the educators um, and everyone seems to talk about either that one teacher or that couple of teachers that were there for them but still talk about the fact that maybe the school itself wasn't right or there wasn't really you know there wasn't that like belief in in a young person we also have a lot of educators teachers etc that listen to this podcast um, what would you say to teachers educators who might be listening in thinking yeah I'm not I, I know that they might have some of the grades but they might not have all of the grades and I'm also not sure if they're fit in or whether, whether that would be the right place for them I think if the student's in the ballpark and when I say ballpark they're going to get the predictions that align with the course requirement at Oxford and Cambridge let them apply the worst thing that will ever happen is they don't get in. And if it's a strong candidate and they've got a sensible range of other UCAS options, they'll get a university offer. And so the question is, what, what are you limiting? I think sometimes teachers say, oh, we don't want them to be disappointed. We don't want them to have to deal with that failure. And my response is always, life's hard. <laughs> Maybe that's a harsh way to talk about it. But at some point in your life, you will fail. And what are we protecting people from? the realities of life, if they want to go for something, that's a brilliant instinct of theirs. And I think what we want to teach young people is reach for that thing, within reason, of course, but reach for it. And if you fall over or you fail, I'll be here to help pick you up and get you going again. I think that's 
the role. So as long as the student's in the ballpark and if they've got that ambition, you can talk to them about the risks. You can check that they understand them. You can check they've balanced all of their options so that it's overall a sensible position. Beyond that, if it doesn't work out, all you have to do is tell them, okay, let's get back up. You've got other options. It's really good that you put yourself out there. And I speak to loads of students because not everyone on my program gets into Oxford and Cambridge, of course, but they go to other brilliant universities. And there's something about upping your game and aiming high. If it doesn't work out, you're always going to end up somewhere good. Mm. If you've already limited yourself from the get go, you're already sort of limiting your possible outcomes. And so I think that's what they'd say. I read too many teachers, I think, say, oh, we just didn't want them to have the failure and I said well you're not protecting them from anything because at some point in life they they will fail bad things will happen we're meant to be teaching people to overcome the inevitable difficulties of life yeah yeah I think that's a really good point to be honest like I've failed my driving test way too many times to know that (laughs) failure is part of life right Um, but I'm just thinking so you know we kind of got to you being at Oxford and then some like a gap between that and you actually starting Target Oxbridge or like being part of Target Oxbridge. How did that happen? How did that come about? I worked for a company called Rare. And before I worked at Rare, I was a candidate with Rare. It's a diversity specialist and it helps people from ethnic minority backgrounds and lower income backgrounds into top jobs. So law firms, banks, the civil service, etc. And I was the first person in my family to go to university. So the, the sense at the time was that almost a job would drop out of the sky because I'd got to Oxford. So I was like, oh, the recruiters are going to come for you. It's fine. You, you're, you've made it now. When I actually got to university, I realised that I didn't understand this graduate recruitment world at all. I didn't really understand my options. I didn't understand the process. My initial thing was, okay, I'll work really hard to get a first and then I'll apply for a job. Luckily, Rare came to the ACS and explained that actually I should be thinking about a first year scheme. And I was like, what? <laughs> there, there are those and, and it's important. So I signed up straight away because I thought, look, I need some help to navigate this. Because there's this idea that once you've made it to a top university, that kind of erases everything else about your background. And that's mm-hmm. just not true. You know, so I arrived at Oxford and suddenly, you know, had a family, had an understanding of all of these processes. And so Rare really helped to, I guess, plug my social and cultural capital gap i didn't have a network in those industries i didn't have an understanding of those worlds and they helped me to understand that and actually supported me to get my job with the civil service fast stream which i did after my first year at rare but i love what they did so much that i tried to intern so i interned with them in my second year did some research got the civil service job but it got deferred for a year again one of these happy accidents in life that changed the course of your life because instead of going straight to the civil service I went to work at Rare for one year and in that year David Cameron was reported to have stated that one black student had gone to Oxford now I just left Oxford I've been on the ACS committee <laughs> like I would have known <laughs> we would have known if there was just one we're like what where, where does this stat come from now what it was is one black Caribbean student had been admitted right. and other black students have been admitted and the, the, the numbers weren't good um but it just went through the press for a few weeks and it reoccurred later in the year as well and it was a really negative bit of coverage like really negative really nasty lots of shouting back and forth with politicians and the universities and nothing positive no announcement that someone was going to do something about it no suggestion that there was going to be a solution just negativity and I thought back to 16 year old me who wasn't really sure she was going to apply and if I'd seen that story I might not have applied at all that's all my worst fears contained in a media storm right and my boss at Rare, um, Raphael Makadas, who set it up, he'd also been to Oxford. He'd been really involved in the access scheme that used to run there and was equally annoyed um, and just deemed it to be not right. And so because I've been complaining that I didn't have enough work, which I will never do again in my life, <laughs> he said, OK, well, why don't you go away and design something? And if the board like it and sign it off, we'll do it pro bono. Because Rare's a, it's a small social enterprise um, but committed to social good. So I ran off at 21 and to design the programme I wish I'd had to make my journey to Oxford less bumpy and less full of unknowns. The board signed it off and then I had about two months to get it up and running. So it was a bit of a whirlwind. But by February 2012, we opened and we had six spaces for year 12, six for year 11s. 
students always apply on the deadline. So I was sat up at 11 p.m. on the deadline. Yeah. Like, no one's applied, no one's applied. And then like these 50, 60 applications came flooding in. And I was like, oh my gosh, like people do want it. They, they do want to take part. And the, there we were, we had our first cohort. And that's, that's where it came to be. So it started really small, really ad hoc. Like I was yeah. taking students up to do visits with my old friends. We were touring people's rooms. I was getting people to sneak us into colleges. It felt ad hoc, but it felt, it felt brilliant because we were able to take the students up and let them meet black students at Oxford and Cambridge and seeing their faces light up because they believed mm. that they literally believed there was just one. Mm. And they think you're lying unless you prove it. And so we took them and we proved it. And I could see the shift at that early point. And three of them got in out of that first wow. group of six. And wow. I was like, okay, this, this works. Yeah. 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 Wow. And like when you mentioned being the first person in your family to go to uni, like that really stuck out to me because I, I am as well. What's weird, like I've got an auntie who actually went to Cambridge and I didn't know because it's like a separate side of the family. I didn't even know that she went there. And I didn't know that so she did the exact same course as me until I met her one day and we were just talking. She's like, what do you do now? I was like, oh, I went Cambridge and I'll try and show off. And she's like, oh, same. And I was like, oh, not that cool anymore. But I do remember being um, what I thought was the first person in my family to be at uni and my little cousin um, coming up to visit on a school trip I think at the time she was in like year 10 or year 11, maybe, no, probably year 10. And her school would brought her up to Cambridge to visit. And this first time that she'd gone basically out of South London, to be honest, and came up to Cambridge was like, whoa, this place is like Harry Potter. And then she was like, oh, can I meet up with you? And I remember talking, because I was just not at lectures, so I should have been. I remember talking to her and her friends and just watching them be like, oh, like I could actually see it in their eyes. Like, oh, this is someone that I know or someone who is like me who could go somewhere like this and, and be here. And I just wanted to talk about you being the first person in your family to go to university. What was that like with the family itself in terms of the dynamics, in terms of conversations? Was there any things that you remember? Yeah, I think my parents didn't go to university but they were always very clear with us growing up that education was very important and they always pushed us to take all the opportunities we could. And they, they used to say, you know, education will give you options. You can choose what you want to do with it, but make sure you get it first because then you can choose whatever bar, you know, instead of being maybe stuck with particular job opportunities because you can't do anything else. And they always used to say, once you get your education, no one can take it away from you that's something that you've secured hmm. and so I think they'd always pushed in that way and when people talk about being first generation to university they're always referring to immediate family because I think that has the impact in terms of what you know and see day to day and what you have access to so similar to you actually I had I had a cousin who went to Oxford he didn't live in London and he was privately educated um, so in some ways our experiences were quite different but he did take me to visit Oxford or I, mm. I went to go and see him and it made a huge difference I still felt a bit of a gap though in terms of what I was experiencing day to day and my access to an understanding of the intricacies of process and also no one in my immediate household could say okay well this is what the statement looks like or this is what you should be reading or this is how you should be prepping and I think as the eldest you're often told that you're the example or people will look up to you so I think that was a motivating factor because I was the first one to go almost or to try. Yeah. And so that felt like a driver because if I could figure it out, then it can trickle down. And it did, you know, once I'd navigated it, I was then able to, I would say I was the in-house careers and um, UCAS advisor for years <laughs> because I've checked so many statements just for, just for my sisters. But once you get that information within a household, it can then really change what people understand in terms of processes. And I think, for my for my sisters it had that impact but there were there were differences I remember going off to Oxford and obviously it's a different world so yeah. they're serving you meals in my college I've, I've, I've never I'd never had a meal with more than one sort of cutlery until I went yeah. to Oxford yeah. so I had this one term with all these different experiences I sounded quite different at that point I had a proper Croydon South London girl accent and voice um and I, I apparently am one of those people whose voices naturally change depending where they are. So mm. I came back sounding different, talking about things that were quite different. Yeah. And 
people do talk about that sometimes you start yeah. to feel a bit different to your family but my family didn't make that into a negative thing um you know they're always the same jokes that you'd get but I think they saw it as, you know, a good thing. I'm exploring a different world and learning different things. And it, it was looked as something that was useful for everyone else's understanding of what to do next. Did any of you guys also experience that as well in terms of you go to uni, you come back and you sound different? I don't, I mean, I think I'd sound a little bit different, but I remember at the time, I, it was a similar thing. Like I came back after my first holidays and my boys, um, I came back trying to hang out with people and I just remember my boy at the time just going, bruv, why are you doing that voice for? And I was, I was genuinely like, what voice? Because I was just talking, you know, and I really thought I was just sounding like myself. And I remember being, I felt really ostracized in a way because I was like, I don't know if I am doing a voice or it's just so that maybe I sound different. And to this day, I don't know. Like, I wish I had a time machine and I could listen to me when I was 16, 17 and see if I'm any different now. But I do remember the very similar thing, like very similar conversations happening. No, my, my voice definitely changed. Like from, I sounded like proper Tommy Dyer before I left. You know, like those, you know, like those, those black people that they sound like they're Cockney. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, I don't know, Steve-O the Madman. That is how I sounded like when I was young. Like really, no, seriously, <laughs> like proper Cockney is how I sounded like when I was young. I wish um, I knew that. And I remember going to Cambridge and someone said, I don't, like someone who was who was British and was like, I don't understand what you're saying. I'm like, what do you mean you don't understand what I'm saying? You're right, mate. I'm like, I, I, just, I, was, I was like, what? I was like, how can someone understand what I'm saying? I'm like, London is 50 miles or, or a bit longer, whatever it is. It's like, it's so yeah. sh- such a short space away from Cambridge. But apparently they don't understand what I'm saying. And I had a lot of people come, oh, sorry, can you just say that again? I didn't understand. And I'm like, what? I'm like, is there something wrong with like, do I need to get elocution lessons or something? Nobody ever told me I needed elocution lessons. And then, uh, yeah, and I, it, it was, that was probably one of the, the first, I had a, a few and, you know, we've, we've spoken about the, the perils of came. That's not what today's about, but definitely one of the things I was like, man, is this what coming to Cambridge is going to make me do? I'm going to have to change the way I speak and all of that. And, but eventually you realize that the, the, that their world, their reality is kind of the, the, that middle-class reality is almost like the reality of the workplace and the corporate space and setting. And it's not, and one of my, my English teachers said to me, she used to say, ghetto, ghetto fabulous um, doesn't exist outside of E16 and E15, which is where I lived in school, was what she used to say. Um, and I never understood what she meant, but when I got to Cambridge, I understood what she meant. And when I, you know, and I, I got it in the end, but that kind of ability to, to code switch, I, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. that actually helped, right? So you can converse with, people in high society but you can also happily have a drink in 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 a pub as as you know i've done so many times in london and you know um and yeah so but it was really weird for me definitely that first term or first two terms i was like wow just yeah but anyway that that took me back that comment i was like man Mm. yeah i think i made a conscious decision in some ways not to change how i speak um i think i've already had some element of experience code switching anyway but one thing that I didn't want to change was like my accent. So of course I can, and, and naturally have to anyway, avoid using like slang and that kind of thing. Cause it's just, is it inappropriate for an academic environment? But um, I really, really, really was conscious of like not losing that element of my identity because I knew for one, I'd just get ripped when I get back to ends. It's like, right well go on like are you what Cambridge yeah that kind of thing in it so <laughs> I said let me let me not do that and I think there's something that was natural about doing that as well was for me because Cambridge is such a bubble like it's so isolated from in in my head at least from like the real world in in inverted commas but like whenever I left Cambridge I was able to just go back to like the my being became completely different in a sense like I felt at home and I could be just be at ease and when I go back that's when it kind of like switches just mm. based on the how the environment switches my personality that kind of thing switched as well which was really interesting and the reason why I knew that that was a thing retrospectively was when we came back to do um in fact no I came back to Cambridge to visit a friend who was still there and I remember getting off the coach and like feeling really heavy 
like it was so strange like my whole mood just like changed and i think it's just the thing with like your the memories that are attached to certain environments and how it can just kind of take you back there um so yeah that was just a a side comment i guess in relation yeah oh no go ahead on that thought about home quickly the thing that i found interesting was when I was at Oxford, I found a group and a community of people where I think I felt at home in a way that I hadn't in Croydon. Mm. So I remember being in secondary school and people used to say I was posh. And I didn't really understand why, because <laughs> I was very much like them. I sounded like them. Um, I didn't have access to any more things than them. But it was because of the words I used. Mm. And basically, I used to read. <laughs> so I remember having a conversation in, in year eight. I said something like, oh, I don't want to be oblivious about X, Y, or Z. And they were like, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> and I remember thinking... That's really like, ironic. Just <laughs> yeah. um, and there have been points in my education, mainly before I'd moved to school, where some of the things I was interested in had, had already been... I'd already been made to feel as if that meant I didn't fit in. Mm-hmm. Um, not all, not everybody, and I found friends who were really keen on education as well and read widely and that sort of thing. But I'd already been made to feel as if something about me didn't quite fit in yeah. some of those environments. And then when I got to Oxford, there was my you know other culture shock because it's a very different place, not as culturally diverse, etc. But I also that when I met my Oxford ACS friends who were definitely home away from home. Um, mm. That's when I started to feel like, wow, I can be all parts of myself now. Mm. I can talk mm. about whatever I want and still do the stuff I like. So we used to go to the, at that point, there was like one R&B night, <laughs> one club on like a, on a Thursday and everyone else at the uni went out on a Wednesday, but I'd always go out with the ACS on the Thursday. And I was like, look, I can go out, dance the vibes cartel, and then if I'm walking home at 3 a.m. talking about philosophy with my friend, all of those things can happen at the same time. Mm. Mm. And I'm not hiding any one part of myself. I'm being fully myself. And that that was the first point where I wasn't really feeling apologetic for any part of my identity or interest because I'd found a community where all parts of me were valid. And Zadie Smith talks about this sort of multiple voice thing. She talks about the voice she picked up at Cambridge and also her original voice. And she talks about not, it's not an exchange of one world for another. Mm. I guess, Tom, to the point you were making, it's picking up multiple worlds and the ability to move through multiple worlds. And it's never that you're turning your back on any part of yourself. You can't, it's it's in you already. Mm. It's more about just gathering more ways to exist in the world with different groups of people. Mm. And I come back to that always when I think about that because people are like, oh, don't you feel like you you know, turned your back on who you are. And I was like, no, I can only ever f- be more fully myself by existing yeah. as myself in all the places that I should be able to access. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think anytime anyone mentions Zadie Smith, I just instantly just my ears prick up because I'm like, yeah, that's... Yeah, that's- same. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know that well about me, Tom. But it just, yeah, it's, it speaks to the fact that, you know, I can be both. I can like philosophy and also like Vibes Cartel and those things can exist. And I think mm-hmm. one, it makes me think about some of the fears I even had uh, prior to going to uni. And, you know, when I thought I'm not even going to go because I'm w- so worried about losing me in terms of the things that I thought I liked. And because, like, it was like, nope, if you go uni, you have to be this other person now. And like, that was a way that I saw it maybe like 12, 13, I don't even know how long ago, like back then. Um, And I just think like going to university is one aspect of social mobility, right? Like it's not the end of social mobility, but it's one part of it. And what are some of the, I guess, similar maybe fears or worries that you see with the young people going in through Target Oxbridge now? Well, there are quite a few different things. There's, There's the first thing, which has changed over the years, but initially it was, will I be the only black person there? now that has changed to I want to be one of the black people there and I can track it through the applications I get Hmm. and now it's a case of I saw that so and so from my school or from my area went I want to go to and come back and show people in my community that it's possible and that really warms my heart because that's different to 2012 when people were saying I've never seen a black person go so we've already seen that shift but there's still that concern which is why the work still needs to happen and the access to role models is really important. 
Sadly, a lot of students have a concern about how they are perceived. So will they be perceived as sufficiently smart or intelligent? This always breaks my heart because sometimes they're sitting there with like grades, brilliant grades from poor performing schools. And you look at them on paper and think this person is amazing, but they don't know Mm. that they are amazing. It's our job to make them, you know, fully embrace that and understand that. Um, but sometimes they say, you know, oh, I speak a bit differently or I don't read this thing or I don't have all of those experiences. And I guess it's a fear about not having the same cultural capital as people who usually go. Mm. And for us, it's a bit about giving them access to those things. But then also saying the things you are interested in are valid. So if you want to read about the things that interest you in your particular subject that have a link to your identity or your culture, those are also valid. You don't have to only look at the things that you think everyone's reading, because if you're interested, you will learn and that's yeah. fine. And also there is no way that you ought to speak or the tutors really don't even care about that. They yeah. want bright people. And whenever the tutors come and work with the students, they always leave saying, oh my gosh, they're brilliant because ultimately they just want to teach the brightest person and that's something that we really are able to tell the students but then when they get to do the sessions with the tutors that's powerful because they do it they do well they get praise and they leave thinking okay now I can interact with these tutors and have them perceive me as somebody worth teaching and then beyond no no go ahead please please I've got a question afterwards but please go ahead oh thanks um Beyond, beyond that, I think there is that question about will I be able to fit in both when I get there and also when I get home. And that conversation we just had about not ever really having to choose between being one version of yourself or another, but just constantly evolving. Because I think it's a fear of change. But what I always say to young people is if you stayed the same all your life, I think that's a problem. <laughs> change is not bad. Um, change, change is good new experiences are good and if you do something and you don't like it it's not by force that you do it again but at least try it yeah. um, and if you turn out to be a different person after three years good if you go in and you come out the same something bad has happened and you, you've missed out on a lot so I think it's to shift that understanding like we don't always want to be the same person we want to change never forgetting who we are but always always adding and enhancing yeah I, I guess it's always that fear of like um like change, I suppose, yeah, isn't, it isn't supposed to be a bad thing, but there's that fear of like kind of selling out sort of quote unquote, um, or just, yeah, losing your authenticity. And like, as you said, Naomi, like sort of forgetting where you come from. Um, and I think for, yeah, from, for people from sort of, um, minority backgrounds, marginalized backgrounds there's always that fear because it's like, we're my, uh, minoritized already so you know is my success whether it's academic or or whatever metric of success will that come um at the expense of losing a part of of, of, of who i am um and so, so it sort of leads me on to my my next question um with sort of target oxbridge um um students once they sort of get to Cambridge or Oxford, um, you know, they do well, their degree and they get to sort of like the, the hiring stage. Is there like a, I guess a kind of like a, a second tier of that kind of fear of like, you know, am I going to sort of excel, you know, in the next stage of my life? Do they, do they have those similar fears going into that kind of the, the, the big bad world of, of work? Um, is there, do you feel that, you know, in, in the way that we're sort of preparing students to kind of um, not fear the sort of unknown at Cambridge and Oxford, do you feel like that, that kind of mentality exists for them going on to the next stage um, when it comes to the world of work? Yes. There's a lot of concern, even with the students who are applying to university, about employability. And some of the work we have to do is to broaden their... Um, options in terms of what they think is possible course-wise because they come to us and everybody wants to do medicine economics engineering or maths 
Um, so if, you know, if you've got ethnic parents, or, or law, sorry, of course, if you've got ethnic parents, you're looking at one of those courses, I think we will consider them at some point. And it's because there's a very you know, valid concern about being able to get a job. You know, for a lot of our students, they're first or second generation um, immigrants. Their parents have made a move so that they can have better opportunities and so that they can have a secure job. And so that's a concern from the very beginning. What we're able to do, because at Rare we have all those graduate recruitment links, is say, you don't have to do a law degree to be a lawyer. You don't have to study economics to be a banker. What you do need to do is pick a subject that you will excel in, which is normally the one that you actually like, and then start thinking quite early about your employability. And so that means we've got some students who love Spanish and actually now pick to apply to Spanish. They therefore increase the chance of getting into Oxford and Cambridge, and then they have a better chance of doing a good job at that degree. And we tell them, you need to be thinking about your career options from early. And at Rare, we work with law firms, consulting firms, the civil service um, and, and banks. And so if the students are interested in that, they are able to start even at Target Oxbridge actually speaking with some of those organisations because we have some of those organisations sponsor. And we actually have them come and say, we don't mind what your degree course is, we just mind that it's rigorous and that you do a good job in it. And so getting that message out early is really helpful. And then students, once they get to their first year, can either come to us for support or if they've chosen another route, we fully support them in doing that. But we tell them, look, you need to start thinking about this from the beginning of your degree journey and not at the end. Mm. So that messaging, I think, helps them to start exploring early because that's the message that I needed. I think if you are first generation, you don't know that that's how the world works and you might just think your degree is enough. And our message is always, it's not enough. It gets you to... It qualifies you for the race. Yeah. But if you're going to run the race, you need to train. And the training is getting your commercial awareness up, going to all of the different careers, events, figuring out what's the right fit for you before you apply. So you don't end up in a job that actually you hate because you didn't do any research. No, it's, and, it's, it's crazy how, I just wanted to say, it's crazy how, um, like, now there are, like, these A-level programs and spring weeks and even sometimes things you can do at GCSEs in the corporate space, which you had to experience in your CV. And so by the time, because I remember when I was at uni, it was pretty much about spring weeks. They were useful. They weren't important. It was all about the kind of second year internship. And then even even you could still do okay and, and get into grad roles at the time. But now that's kind of, it just doesn't happen anymore. Like you have to be on the ball from the get-go. And I'm just like, you're completely correct in terms of thinking about careers. You have to be really... Um, you have to think about it from a really, really young age, but surely that just puts like immense pressure on the, on the kids in terms of thinking, Oh my God, I want to do this. And so how do you, do you reconcile that? Cause I guess in, from that perspective, the, the career landscape has probably dramatically changed from when you started kind of 2012, 2013 to where it is now. How have you been able to, to reconcile that? That is a very good question. I think about that a lot because I work with some of the, most high achieving, most ambitious students. And my fear with them sometimes is that they will burn out as opposed to them not doing enough work. And so a lot of what we do is a, is a balancing act, telling people to aim for the very best, but also saying that the world will not end if you do not get this. The world will not end if you don't get that opportunity this time. There's lots of other opportunities to try and you don't have to look at this as if everything is all or nothing. And then also I do quite a lot of different sessions where I'm giving them advice on how to keep balance. So I talk a lot about sleep. Make sure you're sleeping. You can't learn if you're not sleeping. I talk about making sure that you're doing the things that make you rounded. So make sure that you are still taking part in sport if that's important to you, that you are socialising if that's important to you. Because I think there's a tendency now more than ever for students to get quite anxious. We've, we've seen increased anxiety amongst young people over the over the decade and I think it's because things do feel very very high stakes and so it's about getting that balance between aiming for the very best but also knowing that life is a marathon not a sprint so you Mm. need to look after yourself you need to be thinking about your wellness and you have to have some perspective so sometimes when students are you know losing it over something I say what's going to happen will you die and they sort of laugh and they say no (laughs) I'm okay (laughs) So we know we won't die. 
So let's, let's bring it down a notch and let's just figure out what's the very worst thing that can happen to you here. And quite often it's, I'll go to X uni and not Y uni. And I'm like, okay, well, that's still brilliant. And like, yes, that's true. Or I'll have to apply for a different internship next year. I'm like, okay, well, you still have time. So we can just try to give them that perspective. Because I remember being that age and everything feels like the, the end, right? <laughs> the, the end of the world, the end of your life. And I can empathize with that. So it's about bringing that perspective to them. And sometimes talking to them about, look, can you do all of these things realistically? I've got some students who sign up to so many things, they then have to start dropping out of them or they don't do them with their full attention. And so I have to sit them down and say, this is not how you wish to behave with potential employers or with people to whom you've made commitments. You must make commitments that you can keep Mm. and that you can keep without burning out. Mm. So let's prioritize. And sometimes you have to say no to something so that you can do the things on your list properly. And it's about helping them to do that. Because I think there's so much to do now so much more than when I was their age. And it's about giving them that ability to sometimes slim it down and focus instead of spreading themselves too thinly. Yeah. Yeah. I think just with this, the time that we've got left, because we've talking, I can't even speak. We've spoken a lot about some of the barriers uh, facing people. So some of the challenges and things to be aware of, but obviously in your time, you know, like saying numbers, like 74 people getting in this year, must've been some amazing, great success stories or things that have been really positive to talk about. Um, Are there any that stick out for you that you want to share? Oh yeah. So many. Um, I always say that I'm just so full of hope because of the students I work with, because some of the things they do before they even graduate are amazing. And because I know they're coming next in terms of going into the workforce, going to do next things, I'm like, I have high hopes for the future because they are so impressive, the students I work with. The very first cohort of students we had, um, we had a student called Alexandra Wilson, who I met her at 16. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Everyone knows her name, to be honest. Yeah, I met her at 16. She's like, I want to be a barrister. I want to study law. I was like, cool. I think you might be more likely to get in for PPE. She's like, okay. She went, she studied PPE. She's now a barrister. She's like releasing books. She's on the television. She's she's really trailblazing, you know, in, in that industry in terms of representing and sharing the challenges of black barristers, which you know people have been experiencing for years, but she, she's in a position to share that in the way that she shares it. And watching that has just been amazing. Quite a lot of the students that I've worked with have gone on to be African Caribbean Society presidents, vice presidents, you know, they've started access conferences, they've really been campaigning for change. And I always say to them, when I, I feel like when I was at Oxford with my peers we were surviving and the ACS was a place of survival there weren't even enough of us to fill committees I had two committee positions because there weren't enough of us to fill the committee to make it manage (laughs) so the president in the year before was like Naomi will you also run for secretary because we can't technically run without a secretary and we don't have enough people who can run the ACS (laughs) Um, so we were surviving and now because there are more black students at Oxford and Cambridge I really feel like they're starting to thrive Mm. and they're not just going to put up with what's there because they've not got you know enough numbers or enough energy to push they yeah. can and it's amazing to see that they, they now push for change and so i think seeing the acs's connect up with the access teams oxford and cambridge and pushing for access in a way that's actually meeting black students needs is amazing and then when the students graduate or even when they're still there they come back and they help at Target Mm. Oxbridge and the one thing I always say at the end of each cohort is at one point I will call you and it will be to help the next generation and just remember that no one gets anywhere without help so when you get to that point where you're really successful which I know you will be don't become one of those Hmm. people who has that new narrative of like I did it all by myself yeah because nobody yeah does it by themselves they're either sitting on you know private education and hundreds of thousands of pounds of familial support and networks or they've got teachers they've got mentors someone's helped them so just remember that and when the call comes whether it's from the program or from another student just pay it pay it forward just make sure that you remember that and they've taken that on board and more and so seeing them carve out those spaces for themselves at the universities makes me very hopeful for what they'll do once they get into industry as well nice 
I also just want to ask, following on from that, is um, can you talk about? I mean, I think you mentioned earlier the the collaboration between the universities and the colleges, and can you talk about some of the um, the key mo- the key milestones um, that has got you from twenty twelve, or some of the key milestones that have got you from twenty twelve to twenty twenty in terms of the collaboration with the the unis and the colleges? Just a couple of examples. Definitely. So we ran Target Oxbridge pro bono and just with rare up until late 2016 and so we were constantly talking to the universities letting them know that we existed and we were there um and then in late 2016 oxford came on board and said that they were keen to see us expand because we'd got to 30 students and we just couldn't afford to grow it anymore it's quite an intensive program the students get loads of one-on-one support and we couldn't reasonably fund it to get any bigger on our own And so Oxford said that they would help us expand to 45 students and give us a residential visit, which was one of my biggest dreams when I started the programme, the idea that I could take students to stay for a few nights at a college. And in early 2017, we got to do that. And that was better than running up on a train for a day, running around some colleges that I was stuck into and then running back down. Because there's a power in going to sleep there and waking up. And by the end of the three days, the students really start to see it as a place that they can also belong in and they have a right to be in mm. because they're just buildings. But they're, they're, the buildings are very um, intimidating when you first see them. But once you slept there, you wake up. It's just a building. A place is only ever really the people within it. And if you're one of the people, you can start to shape it. Then Cambridge um, had us do a one day visit in 2017 and then came on board formally to help us expand for 2018. Now we were meant to go to a particular number but that year we saw a very large number of applications, larger than ever, and we moved quite quickly with the universities to scale up to 160 which at that point was an official tripling and I've never actually seen, I've had people tell me that they've never seen something move so quickly at Oxford and Cambridge. Um, I'm sure you're all aware as just to how slow processes can be there because each college or 35 of them or however they are have to sign off on everything there's committees at college level there's committees at university level so I had a six-week period that was a bit mad in late 2017 running around to push for this very big expansion and for me that was a really big milestone I was exhausted by the end of that year but the Christmas present was knowing that we were going to have 160 places in early 2018 and that that was a huge milestone and by that point we had both universities on board um, a residential at both. We're now too big to have all the students at once. So 80 go to Cambridge for three days and 80 to Oxford. Um, and since then we've had, we've been on the same size. So I think those were the big milestones with Oxford and Cambridge and having them and the colleges support that expansion. Since then we've had really close partnership working and it's, it's been really valuable to the change, I think. That's amazing. It's so it's so positive. I'm just feeling really warm on this Sunday morning hearing all of this <laughs> stuff. And um, we're just coming up to sort of the end, really. So I wanted to just quickly ask Patrick, Tom, if, if you had any questions, any last ones that you wanted to throw in there. No, I don't know, Patrick. Um, don't yeah. Know if you're there. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm still there. No, I was, I was just thinking because I always have something to say, but um, no, um, I yeah, no, I think you've covered so much. Um, and yeah in in many ways like although like all of us have kind of gone through these sort of experiences at at Cambridge and Oxford it's like I'm I've learned so much from this as well um just kind of like the things that kind of happen that you don't really sort of notice until you're much older and you're like oh rah yeah actually if I'd known that or if I'd done that you know um it could have helped a lot at the time but um yeah just Thanks a lot, Naomi. It's been, yeah. again, it's been a pleasure just like chatting about the great things that you're doing with Target Oxbridge and um, yeah, just keep it up. We're just, yeah, big fans as always. Yeah. And I just think one of the things that you said really stuck out to me, this idea that, you know, you didn't do it on your own. It's like the reminder to young people and the reminder to everyone. I think often when we think of social mobility, people forget that it's actually social and just think that it's about you know just themselves getting wherever we got in the world but actually when I think back as to the just the vast number of people that have helped me continue to help me to be where I am today 
um, and just how important that is in recognizing I think for parents teachers young people themselves um, probably listening in what that means for the journey that they might be on and what that means for all of us in terms of our upward hopeful mobility in that sense to be able to do the things that we really want to do um, by way of just finishing up then is there anything that you would say as like a last quote maybe to yourself when you were younger or to anyone who has young people around them and is listening to this episode I asked this question at the end of my podcast <laughs> and yeah I'm not prepared for it uh, which is quite funny um I think to to my younger self I think I'd have to say just remember that you're good enough and don't let anybody ever make you think otherwise mm. because that was the battle I had and I didn't really start to enjoy Oxford until I let go of all of those voices and just started to back myself and the thing I say to a lot of students now is you've come this far so why not go just a little bit further mm. and I, I think that's that's why I'd say yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That's really powerful. Uh, you come this far, why not keep going further, right? It's just a note for us all to bear in mind, particularly when we think of the world at the moment. Um, so just the last thing then is if people want to stay in touch or get in touch with you, where's the best place to find you? I'm on Twitter at Naomi underscore Kelman, Instagram at Naomi Kelman, Target Oxbridge is on Twitter and Instagram, just at Target Oxbridge. And they can also tune in to the Target Oxbridge podcast where we talk about all things Oxbridge and black students. Amazing. Well, thank you so much once again for the time, Naomi. It's been a really powerful, I think, discussion, just really reflective in my own sort of experiences and also made me think about the hope that there is at the moment for the future in terms of some of the change that like we've been lucky enough to have ex-Target Oxbridge graduates of the program on our own podcast yeah, yeah. So they're just just inspiring people to be honest <laughs> all right so with that uh, if if there's nothing else from anyone I just want to say as ever thank you for listening into our podcast if you want to stay in touch please send us an email otbpodcastuk at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter and OTBpodcastuk um, and we'd love to hear from you so thank you very much everyone that's us done for this episode over and out <laughs>